Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. I'm Xiao Xuanli, a graduate student in Chinese literature. Today we will be discussing how a rising writer can achieve literary success, but in the setting of 16th century China, where the advent of printing brought forth new path to fame. Historically, literary reputation and identity were intimately tied with one's position as an official in the government, which came by the way of participating in the civil examination or family inheritance. Was this seemingly more meritocratic path truly an alternative to achieving literary success, or did writers still need the recognition of the elite literati? Answering these questions today with us will be Jinghuan, a third-year PhD student in Chinese literature and book history. Welcome to Veritalk, Juan. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, Juan, why don't we start by,、um, if you can give us a general background of the literary culture at this time in Ming China? Okay. So, first to explain what Ming China means. So, Ming Dynasty starts from、um, 1368, and it ended in 1644, and it was the last dynasty in China ruled by Han Chinese. Right. And、um, the The, the first emperor of this dynasty, he imagined a society of self-sufficient communities, and so he is very restrict in terms of how much freedom an individual could have in the local community.、Mm-hmm. And yeah, he he wants this empire to be in full control, basically. But the very, thing, very centralized. Yeah, right. Yeah. Very centralized.、Mm. But、um, his envisioning of this this empire has to be changed during the middle of the dynasty when commerce really began to prosperous in China. On the lower level, you can see people travel more, and、mm-hmm. then the commerce began to really prosper,、okay. and it's harder and harder to have control. Uh, I mean, for the central government, it's harder to have control over the local place.、Uh, and what did this mean for literature, both in the consumption of it and the production of it? Yeah, good question. So、um, at the beginning, the primary genre was、um, conventional, one, conventional ones such as poetry and prose. But when it came to the say 15th century, people began to、um, put out drama and fiction, which Were considered as more vulgar in、mm. the late imperial China. So I wonder, did drama and fiction did they exist before? They were just sort of considered unseemly, or do these really look like new genres arising sort of out of nowhere at this period? They existed before, but they were invisible. Okay. In a sense, because people don't print it and people don't talk about it. I see.、Yeah. I think they were circulated probably among the popular. Um, the audience right, orally, right. but there were not too many written records of drama and fiction. Yes, and you、it. couldn't find it in the、um, collections of higher literatus. Right. So now let's talk about these. This group of the elite literati. I, I know this term; it's it's used a lot in Chinese literature, but I'm still not quite sure what it means.、Um, what does this group of people look like? How one could become an elite literatus is. This question goes back to the Song Dynasty, actually, even before 10th century, when the civil examination system was fully installed in China.、Mm. The the commoners or people who have access to books and、mm. could study can gain their official position by succeeding in civil exams. But was this the only way that one could become part of this, you know, the the literary class? Was that if 
they took the civil examination and did well in it. Well, it's still possible to be part of the group if your father is one among them, or I your see. grandfather is a very prominent guy. So it's either inherited, a kind of inherited status, or yeah. if you wanted to gain access to it meritocratically, it would have to be through the civil examination. So this is fascinating from a Western perspective, because at roughly the same time period in Europe, we have a similar situation. We have courts, and the majority of literary production is happening around courts, right? Mm -hmm. And that's entirely aristocratic. You need to be born into courtly society to be a literatus, as in China. And there's no analog to the civil examination. So, to the civil examination. There's no sort of meritocratic function that gets you automatic entrance into these upper circles of society. Yeah. So was it pretty common for commoners to end up as respected members of the literati? Um, I think imagination or the purpose of the exam is to recruit as many talented people into the court as possible. Mm -hmm. But the truth is not everybody could have access to education and books. Mm -hmm. It is only gen because male labor was someone who, who could gain, gain interest for the household just by doing labor works <laughs> as in, in the agriculture society. If you, you want to have your son expired from doing the work for the family, you have to have enough capital or savings to liberate him from that just to study and then become a success examining. Just a quick follow-up question. So we have a civil examination that gains you entrance to officialdom, but I wonder how common is literary writing among officials? Because I imagine not everybody in the officialdom is participating in these literary clubs, right? The, the idea of literati in China is not as it's not precisely the same as the the word that is used in Western context because literati is more like the group of people who spend most of their time in reading writing and they could rely on this to make a living mm. whether or not they bec they are an official. But the ultimate purpose of learning is to become an official. However, the post is very limited. So by the meantime, you can see there is a large group of people who learned a lot during their lifetime, but they couldn't become one among the officialdom. Now, can you talk a little bit about the consumers of literature? In the previous genres that you've mentioned, uh, I think drama and, and fiction would be more popular among the lower classes, but what about um, the poetry and prose that's being written by members of the literati? Among what class of people are these writings circulated, and who are their readers? The, the, the idea of literacy has multiple layers by itself because mm -hmm. people can, you can say one, one is literate because he could read, but um, the materials is also differentiated into different layers because you have the, the writings in more vulgar language and you mm -hmm. have the writings about the, the, the scenes talk and saying, which is not comprehensible by the ones who is not trained in this system. Right. So even among the people who could read, there's different layers. Mm -hmm. And if you also count in people who can comprehend the materials by just listening, there's another layer of literacy mm -hmm. as well. There is a tradition of writing poetry and prose among literati mm -hmm. men of light letters, even before the civil examination already. 
And the readers of these genres are primarily the more the, the well educated ones. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the, the consumers of literature because when we talk about fame or reputation,、mm-hmm. you kind of have to define well, is it fame in the general audience of the of the mass population? Even today, we have low popular literature and high popular literature, and yeah, is it, is it coterie fame or is it? Mass appeal. Yeah. yeah, it's more like coterie fame, but it could and, be. And this is the kind of fame that is heavily dependent upon social networks. Yes, but this coterie fame could spread to the mass market. And could spread especially because right around the same time we're seeing an explosion in commercial printing. Exactly.、Right? Exactly. Could you talk a little bit about about that? The writings of prominent contemporary writer. Is always a- appealing to the massive, less famous literati because they want to become part of this group, so that they want to learn the fashion.、Mm-hmm. But they couldn't have access to the、um, collections and the writers、mm-hmm. of the prominent figures if they could not have a commercial, a manuscript. yeah,、right. a, ma- a manuscript or a commercially published collection. Of that person, but the thing is, that it's not that easy for commercial publishers to have access to the writing of the、uh, more prominent figures because in the cultural publication network, it was considered as kind of dangerous and risky to let your writing outside of this cultural. And it is precisely by maintaining your writing within this group that you can sustain its status as a prestigious one. Could you give us an example of one of the greatest hits from this period? So, what was a literary work being printed that was circulated among members of the aspiring literati? Yeah, the example I could think about is Xu Wei. He was born in 1523, and he died in. It's impressive. <laughs>、uh, just my homework. <laughs>、um, He died in 1593, I think. So、um, he was a 16th-century writer, and he was really—he's very, very talented. But his personal life is miserable, both in terms of his the family he was born to, and also he lost his father during a very young age, and then subsequently his mother and his stepmother. But he was really, really talented、mm. in writing, and he tried so many dozens of times to succeed in the examination,、mm. but he just couldn't not. And this would be his only way, being born into as. I understand, not a prestigious family. Yeah, that would have been his only way to gain access into the elite literature. Right,、cycle. by taking the exam. I see. Yeah, and then later he suffered from insanity, and he is also always <laughs> <laughs> a writer. Yeah, yeah, right, right, great yeah. writers、uh, and、uh, tragic life, but great,、uh, great production in terms of、uh, literature and art because、mm-hmm. he paints. And he does cre-、uh, calligraphy very well as well,、mm-hmm. but he didn't make a fame during his lifetime at all, basically, except for on the local level.、Mm-hmm. An example is、um, he includes one of his correspondence with a more famous one that is recorded in our today's literary canon. A more famous he, writer of the time. Right, right, right. In his personal collection. But in that guy's, the more famous guy's、mm-hmm. collection, we couldn't see the correspondence to him. So that it means the person really disdains this connection and don't want to、uh, manifest it、right. in his output. Now Xu Wei becomes really a figure in Chinese literary history because he was. His work was discovered by Yuan Hongdao,、mm-hmm. who was born two、mm, generations after him.、Mm. 
And um, Yuan Hongdao is a very prominent figure, both in terms of the literary field and the officialdom. Could you give an example of one of his greatest works that we read, still read today? His works that is considered as most read is his four plays called and The Four he's... Cries of the Gibbons. Gibbons? <laughs> yeah. Like monkeys? Monkeys, yeah. Right. yeah. And what, what are they about? Chinese plays tend to have very peculiar names. Mm. <laughs> it um, consists of um, four plays in the Yuan drama genre. He, he reworks the topics and themes that has been already existing in Chinese literature but writes it in a very artistic and kind of whimsy way. One is um, the story that I think during the Wei Jinanbei Chao, which is the 3rd century to 5th century, mm -hmm. a girl mm, dressed up as a boy to participate in the wall in replacement of his father. Is this the Mulan story? Yeah, it's a Mulan story. Oh, for And then made by Disney World. Wow. <laughs> the, so he goes um, from going film. insane with lack of fame to becoming a Disney star. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere he's recognition. <laughs> or he or he shares the same interest as Disney company <laughs> in producing a well-known story. Were these printed commercially during his lifetime? Um, yes, it was. But the peculiar thing is, he didn't even want to attach his name to it mm -hmm. because it was still considered as less prestigious. And the personal collection he managed to put out by himself at the end of his life doesn't include this place. Is it not really accurate to say that commercial printing presented a viable second alternative to to literary fame? Because it didn't seem to get him any closer to gaining access to elite literary circles. It was sort of this completely other or well, parallel but other path to achieving popularity. It is a possible alternative path but also it's no because it's how one could establish his fame by commercial printing is very unstable and couldn't be predicted. I see. Yeah. So if you really seriously want to establish yourself as a serious writer and um, literatus, you wouldn't just give your writing to commercial publishers, see, just publishment mm. works. Mm -hmm. The reason why Xu Wei established his reputation is he was appreciated by Yuan Hongdao and Yuan Hongdao gave his work. I think probably by praising his work, Yuan Hongdao made his work accessible to commercial publisher and Yuan Hongdao evoked the attention of commercial publisher. I guess my, my question as a follow-up would be you know, if as you're describing, having access to these elite literati groups is so essential to establishing one's reputation, then what does it mean for the content and the style of writing during this period? Can you say, is it going too far to say that this stifled originality and innovation because the aspiring writers would presumably write in a style that mimics what was already in vogue or what was already upheld by the elite literary circles. This is a topic that I'm pursuing now and I hope to address it in my dissertation. But uh, my hypothesis is there are so many factors that could contribute to what we consider as the literary style during a certain period of time, especially when this period is so remote from us, like 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. Who has the right to say what is the contemporary style even? The issue would boil down to the question of who has the legitimacy to claim the canonical feature of nature 
of a literary work. So at this time, printing was making it physically possible to distribute works of literature, but that didn't mean wide popularity or success for that literature. You still needed the patronage recognition. or recognition of, yeah. a, of a given group of literati. Right, mm. especially given the fact that um, printing was so easy in China during the 15th century. Um, every gentry family who could afford printing set up a printing enterprise to put out a collection of his father or himself. So there was almost a glut of printed literature in China during this period. There was so much printed material that yeah. what the recognition of the literati did was distinguish some printed literature from the mass of hogwash. Right, right, right. And it was really extremely cheap to print a book. So uh, Juan, do you think this has persisted in, in any extent to the present day, to literary culture in China today? Um, I think social network is always important for one to establish his reputation yeah. in China and here as well. You have to be known by the people in this circle in order, in order to establish yourself as a authoritative person or speaker right, so in we, this field, right? Yeah, so we're undergoing a similar sort of mechanical revolution today with the internet. We hear mm -hmm. all the time about the democratic potential of the internet to right. liberate culture, right? But again, the simple fact is that there's just a glut of this stuff. When yeah. everybody in the world can have their own blog, not every blog in the world gets read. Mm -hmm. Something still needs to distinguish blogs or distinguish e-texts. Yeah. So yeah, in, in China today, how does one gain literary recognition or literary prestige? There are many ways and I really like your comparison between the, like, the internet age and the uh, impure China. In contemporary China, there's different ways of doing this. I think in the West, maybe the situation is similar. You can go by the conventional way, but having associations with um, the... In China, contemporary China, there's an association of writers, which is sponsored by the state. Government, yeah. Yeah, right. So basically, all the previous generation of, generation of writers, they, most of them are in this association. So mm. you can see how the network would play out in this case. Mm. So that's the analog of the literati, imperial elite. literati. Right, that's and the con conventional way. But you can also do a contemporary, like more trendy way by writing a lot internet. Mm -hmm. Some particular websites are uh, designed for literary output. I see. So that if a lot of people read your work, it could um, call, call the publisher's attention and the publishers would propose to print it out in a physical form, which is a book. I see. Huang, could you describe just one or two contemporary Chinese writers who particularly excite you? Well, Mo Yan is a large name because yeah, I he won the Nobel him. Prize And recently. I'm guessing his, his fame, at least in China, is more through the, the first path that you've described. Yeah, right. Yeah. An another writer belongs to our generation and is very controversial is Han Han. Yeah. And, he's the complete, <laughs> and he's the complete opposite. I know him, I know him because of the uh, article in The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah right, but he, right, He right. is the perfect example of someone who just writes on the internet and his own blog gains such fame that he's beginning to be right. taken seriously as a writer. But but he's established a persona of anti-authoritarianism exactly. yeah. and he, he's a race car driver and everything. Right, like right, right. And he, he started building his reputation before the internet age came in mm -hmm. because he won the first prize in a um, composition competition. 
Oh, I see. Oh. Yeah. So he did have some seal of, of official right, right. approval to him. But again, like in Imperial China, we see this hybrid of old and new forms of gaining publicity, right? Mm -hmm. United in one ambitious yeah. writer. Right. For Fluff today, we'll be talking about how Chinese students celebrate Lunar New Year while they're abroad. Um, I'm always surprised by how important this holiday is for them. This past weekend, despite the blizzard, um, the Chinese students in my dormitory, Perkins, spent all night Friday not cooking but preparing for the feast that was to come on Saturday. And fortunately, I, they, they took pity on me and invited me <laughs> to go eat along with them, even though I didn't contribute to the labor. Oh, wow, that is, that is pity. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you, Juan? Yeah, it's very... I think the, the, the sense of community um, it's really, it really manifests itself when New Year comes for the Chinese students or scholars who are studying abroad. Yeah. And, and people you, gather together to make the feast, as you said, and right. also maybe people also gather together to watch the New Year Gala. Right, which I think is kind of a particular phenomenon. So this is something that, that happens in China, that there is a huge program that's broadcasted on, on central television and everyone watches this mm. no matter what your class is and it's a program I, I, would, I don't want to say it's sponsored by the state but usually it has quite a patriotic theme to it doesn't it? it it's a combination of, of dance performance talk shows comedy oh talk shows and comedy yeah wow. um, it's, it's so much fun to watch I remember watching this you know, How long as a last? child Probably three or four hours. Four hours. Four hours. So it's kind of like our New Year's ball drop, but it's going on for four hours. Exactly, and, and there's actually substance. Just... It's not just you're waiting for the ball drop. Is is the Chinese New Year centered on one moment, like our New Year's? Is there an instant when it goes from year year of the snake? <laughs> okay, right? Yeah, right. So it was the year of the what? Well, so in the gala, they, they do this. They have a countdown, and it happens at midnight mm -hmm. when at the end of the program and usually there is some sort of fanfare and the entire chorus emerges on stage and sings an inspirational song. I watched it last night. Oh, oh how was it? How the is good it? thing, I mean part of it, yeah. the good thing about internet you, is you can always catch it up. I is watched it? the talk show and comedy. Yeah. <laughs> those, those are a lot of fun because they're so revealing of the, yeah, the popular right. trends exactly. that's going on in China. Exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes they, they can be quite satirical, you would be surprised at Mm -hmm. so, and the degree of being satirical should be allowed by the government exactly. too. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, very subtle and complicated product. Yeah. Is there any analog to New Year's resolutions in China? Mm, I think there is when you're young. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's not a like official thing. You, you have to make one. It's more like personal, private. So that's about all the time we have. Juan Xiaoxun, thank you both so much. So thanks also to our producer James Brandt and our guardian protectors in the GSIS Office of Communications. Veritalk is made possible with help from the Harvard Media Production Center, and our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.